Well, today is our last uh, Sunday on a series of the Ten Commandments, which I started earlier this fall. We've had a couple messages in between there to kind of go along with the times, but we are finally at the Tenth Commandment. And in fact, an insert in your bulletin, there's uh, just a review of the Ten Commandments. Uh, make sure you study for our test next week. <laughs> I'm joking. Maybe. Just kidding. Um, but it's, it's just a good reminder. I hope that you've been blessed um, by this teaching. It's very thorough. Um, and I, I hope it's brought you in, in, in ways closer to God as we just look at God's Word anew in a maybe a little deeper way than we're used to. And so I want to begin with the 10th commandment. It begins in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. As we come to the end of our series on the Ten Commandments, we examine this final law prohibiting the coveting of any kind as it pertains to another person's spouse or another person's belongings. The Tenth Commandment stands alone as a very unique precept for a couple of reasons. First, since coveting is a desire instead of an observable action, it's the only commandment where God clearly outlaws something that's in the heart. Now think about that. Many of the previous commandments are also outlawed in modern laws, such as stealing and murder. But the power of the state can never go so far as to outlaw the desires in one's mind or in one's heart. They cannot convict you for what you are thinking or what you are feeling. However, God demands that we do not strongly desire to have anything that belongs to our neighbor or our fellow citizen. We've already been told not to steal and not to commit adultery. And now he adds coveting to the list. Why is coveting such a bad thing? Well, by coveting, one breaks the first commandment, which forbids idolatry, stating that you shall have no other gods before me. We see it here in Colossians 3, verse 5. It says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, speaking of these, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So why is coveting on the list of things that bring death to us? You see, when we become covetous, we put an object or another person in the place of God. We love it more than we love God. We think of it more than we think of God. We desire it more than we desire God. But covetousness does more than just break the first commandment. In fact, it violates all the commandments at the same time. Jesus told us that the Ten Commandments could effectively be summarized into just two. We are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and spirit, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yet when we covet something or someone, we place it above God. And in effect, it becomes a God in our minds. Since the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God, we break every one of them by removing God from the throne of our hearts and the preeminent place that He should hold in our minds. In addition, since the remaining commandments deal with the loving treatment of others, these are violated when we replace the respect we should have for them with our neighbor or with our covetous desires. Coveting is a strong desire. 
It's a matter of the heart, an attitude, a matter of strong and often unbridled emotion. It's a motivation so strong that if we persist in coveting something, we will get it if there's any way possible to do so, even if it involves an evil act. We lose the ability to be affected by conviction, just barreling through the barricade that should stop us from pursuing sin. The more that we allow coveting to take up residency in our minds, the stronger the desire grows. It eventually consumes us as it sin sets itself up as a conspiracy in our souls to commit evil. Now understand that God is not saying that you should not desire anything. After all, Paul tells us to desire the best gifts. Of course, he's speaking of the gifts of the Spirit. These gifts are available to all who seek God and what He desires to give us to accomplish His purpose. The difference in coveting that the Ten Commandments condemns is that we are not to set our hearts and our minds to desire something that doesn't belong to us, that is not intended for us, or to desire something that we think that we don't have enough of. In other words, coveting always wants more and is never content with what, than what is already had, no matter how much that might be. The prophet Habakkuk gives us a stinging description of a covetous man. Habakkuk 2, verse 5, says this, He is a proud man, and he does not stay at home, because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death, and cannot be satisfied. You see, when we allow our hearts to become covetous without conviction, we remove the governor or the limiting factor in our lives. We will never be satisfied, even if we get what we think we want. Our heart will continue to crave more and more. That's the decepting part of sin. Sin tells you to give you something to meet that immediate gratification, but it's only, it's only temporary. We will continue to want more and more and more if we pursue sin. Coveting literally wants what one cannot have. It wants what belongs to someone else and is not available to others. Although coveting is a consuming desire that can easily get out of control, nonetheless, it is a conscious desire for which we are all responsible. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 which I believe is our memory verse for today. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. You see, the problem with all this media and the handheld computers and the internet and the TV is it tells us to want things on the earth. We know there's many things that can get out of hand with that, but that's one of the things that forces us to consider to want the things on the earth which produces a covetousness and continues that in us. That's why it's nice to get away from the phones and the computers and the TV and spend time with God, desiring Him and desiring His presence. Clearly the Bible tells us that we have the choice of what we can set our minds on in order to establish our hearts. Yet too often when we're attacked by temptation... We begin to believe that our thoughts are out of our control or that we just can't shake this feeling. Now, don't get me wrong. 
It's very difficult to change the course of your mind if you are suddenly facing an evil and brewing storm of temptation. But light is stronger than darkness. And though it takes effort, a soldier of God is able to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ if, and here's the big if, if he or she is willing to fight. What's happened in our society today is many people have lost the will to fight. It becomes a politically correct thing that you're being too aggressive or too passionate to fight. And yet we need to fight the good, the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6, 11, verse 12, 6, 11 and 12 says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You see, what distinguishes a soldier of God from a lackluster believer is not how many times he gets knocked down, because I can tell you, I've been knocked down many times. Anybody else with me? Right? I see a lot of hands going up. Right? It's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up and then run back into battle. Do you guys remember the Rocky movies? Remember Rocky? Got his head pounded again and again and again, but he just kept getting up and eventually went and, and, and succeeded. That's an analogy of our faith. Don't look at how many times you've fallen down. That's what the enemy wants to tell you is that you got knocked down. But then you use the power of the Holy Spirit to get back up when you run back into battle. That's how a soldier of God is defined. We are called not to merely turn from sin, but to flee from it. We are called not to merely want the things of God, but to pursue them earnestly. This takes determination and perseverance and the will to keep fighting the good fight of faith that we may lay hold of the eternal life. The fact of the matter is that we often don't know how strong our faith is until we're in a good fight and we are truly tested. This is not to say that we should purposely put ourselves in a place where we have to fight. On the contrary, we need to be setting our minds each day on that which pleases God. But when a fight comes, we have to be willing to stand and fight for God, for, for what God speaks of us, for God's kingdom. Are you ready? The problem is that we, the more time we spend coveting, the more it steals away our strength and our willingness to even want to fight. Therefore, we must resist coveting at all costs. Coveting can be distinguished from lust because lust is a general desire. Greed is a lust for money and possessions. But coveting is a specific, focused desire, a desire to have a particular thing which belongs to a particular person. Greed may desire money or material things, while coveting desires our neighbor's car our neighbor's spouse, our neighbor's house. Coveting is lust well-defined and specifically focused. Yet coveting does more than desire to take from another. It also steals from us, for it hinders the generosity which God requires of His people. How many times have you ever had to give to someone in need? have the opportunity to give to someone in need. And as you're thinking about doing so, you realize if I give to them, I'm not going to be able to buy that thing that I want. I'm not going to be able to spend this on myself. 
whether you listen to that or not, it's a temptation that in the midst of giving something, the temptation is to pull back, to not give. Covetousness thinks of generosity as a threat to the accumulation of things which are strongly desired. A heart that resists generously giving to the needs of others creates a vacuum for covetousness and greed and lust to come rushing in. One of the strengths of this church is we've always been a giving church. I talked about the missions of always giving. But in our food pantry, even before this pandemic, our food pantry, we've always desired to give to others and to give freely. To give freely because God commands us to do that. That prevents us from being too covetousness. And in the same term, we're saying as we, tr- as we give this away, we trust that God is going to meet our needs. You see, either you're holding on more tightly onto the things of God, or you're holding on to the things that that God has allowed you to have. And even if blessings merely pass through your hands, is it enough to know that you have all you need because you have God's love and forgiveness? Do you hold on to your blessings or do you hold on to God? It's a choice that we make. Therefore, I ask you, what are you holding on to more tightly? God or the blessings? But before your mouth gives this answer, this question might be answered in all honesty, and it should be answered in all honesty by your heart. So, here's a tough question. How many of you, if God asked, would willingly lay down everything you own right now to follow God? How many of you would leave the security of your job and your home and your way of life to completely devote your life to Him at this very moment? That's what missionaries have done when God called them. Now you might think that this is a ridiculous question. Why am I asking of you? Because you're not a missionary. You might think I'm just trying to make you feel guilty or manipulate you. Well, do you remember this scripture? It's in Mark chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. It says, then Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, the man was, and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You see, this reply by Jesus was prompted by a rich young ruler asking the Lord what it would take him to inherit eternal life. Even though this man kept all the other commandments, it was his unwillingness to let go of the things of the world that forfeited his eternal inheritance. And if Jesus could say it to this man, what makes you think that he wouldn't ask you the same thing? While many are quick to say that this man had a choice to renounce his wealth right then and there and start following Jesus, it is clear he did not do this. But before you get too judgmental of this man, would you be prepared to walk out of this church today, right now, and leave everything and everyone you know behind to pick up your cross to follow Jesus? The point of this question is not to guilt you into doing something very difficult but rather to see what is truly in your heart. Is your devotion to God one that's willing to let go of anything in this world so that you can follow Him wholeheartedly? Or is there a great resistance? And having to let go of the things that you have 
if you are indeed called to do so. The truth is that God is calling all of us to come follow Him and to give Him our lives. Exactly what that calling entails for you can only be answered by you when you spend intimate time with Him. The million dollar question is this. How badly do you want to know the answer? How badly do you want to know what God is speaking directly to you? Because it speaks different to all of us. How badly do you want to know the truth? Because the only way that you can know the truth of His answer for you is to first be willing to hear God tell you the same thing that Jesus told this rich young ruler. If you are not willing to hear this reply, then how will you know that you are not just telling yourself what God is speaking to you? Think about that for a while. Above all, God desires that we be generous with our time and our talents and our resources. We are here right now because we're giving our time to God for Him to speak His truth to us through His Word. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, says, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates of your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need whatever he needs. Verse 10, You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. You see, we are clearly commanded to take care of those around us and not to be grieved about it. God demands a generous heart one that doesn't hold so tightly onto all the blessings that we received so that we in turn can be passed these blessings on to others in need as well. A generous heart that is focused on giving to the needs of others is actually one of the greatest examples of faith. Because a generous person takes care of the needs of others and he also must realize, or he or she must realize, if I take care of the needs of others, I have to trust that God is going to take care of my needs. That's trust and that's faith that our God is going to take care of us. Therefore, we are commanded to give generously. In fact, our giving to those in need not only takes care of those to whom God strategically places around us, it also says much about our love and our devotion to God. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. I know Nancy spoke on this a couple months ago. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You see, it doesn't take long to realize just how narrow the road is that we are called to walk as followers of Christ. What I mean is it's more than just keeping ourselves on the right road. Listen, if we fail to take care of those in need, it's a sin. But also if we take care of them but with the wrong motivation, such as to draw attention to ourselves, it is also a sin. In addition, if we get offended because the one in need doesn't appreciate our help, we step into sin with our offense. Therefore, to give us the proper focus as we set our mind on the things of the Lord, we must see that ultimately whatever we do, 
We are to do heartily as to God and not to those to whom we are giving assistance. We are giving to God. Even though someone else may be blessed for it, that's how God love, love flows through us and to other people when we're obedient to Him. For it is the Lord to whom we are serving and to Him we are giving glory in all that we are doing. With this proper focus, we will not be led by our pride or by expectations of appreciation. Sometimes you will get thanks. Sometimes you won't. But God sees what you're doing if you're doing it with the right heart. On the contrary, a generous man understands that all he does is for his heavenly Father, who has already given him more than we could ever repay. While covetousness pollutes your heart, weakens your will to fight, and brings a wedge between you and others, the worst thing it does is it destroys your inheritance in God. Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. It says, For this you know, that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, we see this in the New Testament. Many times people say there's no fear of God anymore. That's just in the Old Testament. There's a lot of teachings on the fear of God. As we've talked about before, some of the modern versions of the Bible remove the fear of God and say God is all love, God is all grace. You can live however you want because God loves you. It's not what the Bible says. These are the words which should shake us to the core. No covetous man or woman has any inheritance in God's eternal kingdom. And since covetousness is is a desire, listen to this, since covetousness is a desire that is known only to God and to us, It's completely up to us to be honest with Him about the current state of our hearts. It's a very serious matter. Our eternal inheritance rests upon our honesty. Yes, there is grace for those who repent and ask forgiveness. But don't for one moment think that God will just overlook all the things that you refuse to admit and address. There are many today who would tell you not to worry about God's judgment because His grace covers all. They tell you just enjoy life because your eternity is secure if you've asked Jesus into your heart. They say grace covers all. They say in the end, God's love wins and everyone goes to heaven. That's being set out there right now in some churches. Don't worry about following God. He's already forgiven you. That's not biblical. If you read the Scriptures in their entirety and do not take man's word for it, you will see for yourself that only the fear of God allows access into this grace. It says right here in the Scripture, Let no one deceive you, for the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. If you love God, if you come to Him and say, God, I've messed up. I've had this covetous desire. I've committed adultery in my heart. I've lusted after the things of the world. I've bared false witness. God says, thank you for your honesty. Now I have something I can work with. And then God says, I forgive you of all your sins. If you come to Him and you're honest with Him, you don't need to announce it on social media. You don't got to announce it to, to all, 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 everyone else in public. But if you come to God honestly and say, say, God, I'm struggling, I've sinned, I can't break the stronghold, then God says, thank you for giving me your honesty. God wants to heal you and redeem you and restore you. There are many today 
who misappropriate and misinterpret the concept of grace, believing that God's love has erased all of his wrath. This simply is not biblical. It is because God is a loving, good, and just God that he must judge sin. What is true about God is that he doesn't take away sins that we refuse to let go of. He doesn't cast his hand over the entirety of creation and simply withdraw all sin from mankind. Although Christ died for our sins, the only way we access this gift is through repentance, through acknowledging that we have sinned, by asking for forgiveness from Him, and then accepting the grace of His sacrifice through faith. That's why we're here today. It's to continue to learn how God loves us and draws us close to His heart. It is also in continuing to bring this sacrifice to mind on a daily basis that we keep the faith in perseverance and stay true to His Word, to live according to His will, and to keep fighting against the strategies of Satan to pull us back into the pit of sin. The world is working overtime right now. It's trying to pull you back in to the place from which God pulled you out of. We need to press into God. We need to stand on His Word. We need to be a family of God and come alongside one another and link arms and pull one another through it. Not condemn them. Not judge them. But to love them through wherever they are at right now. The family of God needs to fight for one another and with one another. Amen? If there is one thing that we should strongly desire on a daily basis... It is exactly what Paul prayed for his fellow believers. Ephesians 1, 17-18 That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? It is the hope of God that pulls you out of the trials. It's the hope of God that takes you out of the miry pit and puts you in God's presence. It's the hope of God that takes you out of this world through which we are just passing and puts you in eternity with God. We need to know the hope of God and it comes by spending time in His presence and getting into His Word and interacting with His Word. It takes a daily meditation and prayer and allowing God to soothe truth into your souls to come close to understanding the real hope of His calling. For the heart that truly knows the riches of His glory, there's no need to covet anything. Ephesians 1, verse 19 and 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. You know, because we refer to the resurrection so often, we can easily lose the intense awe of what happened nearly 2,000 years ago. What we fail to fully realize is the exceeding greatness of His power to beat back temptation, to triumph over the enemy, to declare victory over death and the grave, opening the way of eternity with our Lord to all who place their trust in Him alone. And now, Christ sits at the right hand of God, interceding for you and desiring above all else that you would fully know Him, even as He fully knows you. 
He doesn't reject you. Listen to this. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're thinking about. He knows how you've been tempted. He knows that you're, the sins that you're going to commit, and yet He loves you anyways. His focus is on you right now, drawing you closer to His heart. These are the things which should dominate your thoughts and the meditations of your heart. Instead of all the destructive things which constantly seek to invade your mind and your soul, prompting you to crave and to desire more from this world. I pray that you would be convicted whenever your mind wanders into thinking that you need something more. If you already have the riches of His glory, what else could you possibly need? If you believe you need anything other than the basic needs of life, then ask God to examine your heart right now. Don't stand in combination, in, in, in condemnation. If God convicts you of something, give it to God. And thank Him for the conviction to draw closer to Him. Listen, your heart will always crave something. That's how it's designed. Because of mankind's fall from grace and the resulting sin nature, the heart is incomplete. And nothing of this world will make it complete. Your fleshly appetite will tell you that you need to covet something else that you don't have or someone else who is not available to you. But none of these will fill your heart and completely satisfy you. Regardless of what earthly thing you put into your heart, it will still crave more. Nothing will ever be enough. A heart that goes after nothing but sin will always stay undernourished and unfulfilled. In its present state, an unregenerate heart is imperfect or incomplete. There's only one thing that could ever fill your heart, the indwelling presence of God and His living Word which you continually desire to hear and to know. Hebrews 12, verse 2, tells us to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus is not only the author of our salvation, He's also the perfecter, or the finisher of our faith. Only He can perfect the heart of man. He alone can complete your heart. As you dwell on His sacrifice and meditate on the Word of God and plant it deep into your heart, you experience something else that the world cannot offer. Therefore, you must do more than just read or listen to Scripture. You must become intimate with His Word, allowing God's presence and His power to invade your entire being. You'll never be able to cast out every tempting sinful thought of the enemy unless you give God access into every thought and into every feeling in your heart, soul, and mind. It's okay to go to God and say, God, I can't help it. I'm being tempted right now. God, I'm having this thought over here. God already knows it's there. But when you're not ashamed to share that thought with God that He already knows is there, it says that you trust God. And that increases your faith to hear from God. You must endeavor to continually put His Word in your heart. When I first came here, we had a, a memory verse that's still in our bulletin. But I encourage people to stand on that memory verse to try to memorize it. To try to put it into our hearts. In fact, Psalm 119, verse 11 is where we got this from. King David said, Your Word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. God commands us to not to just read the Scripture, not to just read it on Sunday or to read our devotional, but to take time to find some Scripture to put it into our hearts. 
And you might not be able to memorize all of them, or even a lot of them, but find some that you can put in your heart that continually your heart feeds off of that, your spirit feeds off of that throughout the day. And if you have a hard time remembering, then make a bunch of three-by-five cards and put them everywhere. Put them on your refrigerator when you go to get a snack. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it next to your bed. Put it on your steering wheel. Put it everywhere that when you go to a place, you have to read that to get it to put it in your heart. And whether you think you've memorized it or not, eventually your heart will grab hold of that truth and begin to feed your spirit continually. If we put God's Word in our heart, we will not sin against it. It's a supernatural thing. It's not an act of our will. It's an act of God working in us. How else do you think you'll be able to stay true to the commands laid out by God? It won't be in your own strength or by your own perseverance or determination. It won't be by simply setting your will to it. It is only by a communion or a coming into union with His living Word that you break the strongholds in your life and you loosen the bondage that sin has over you. You must hide His Word in your heart so that you do not sin against it. But don't get me wrong. You can't just throw His Word at a temptation as if you're hurling a spear at it. His Word is not an inanimate weapon. See, many people get the idea of what quoting scriptures is. You're not quoting it at the temptation. You're quoting it to your spirit. Your heart needs to hear the word of God. Not, don't just throw it at it and say, why is this temptation not going? You quote it and you hear, you let, you, you let yourself hear you speaking the word of God. You're feeding your spirit so your spirit can fight against whatever's coming against it. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 tells us this. For the Word of God is alive. It is living and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and of joint and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Since His Word is alive, you must come into agreement with Him when you stand on His Word. When the flesh, the world, or the enemy attempts to lead you in the way of coveting something more, you must ask God to lead you back into His presence as your good shepherd. That's what God intends to do. No matter where you're at right now, if you're in guilt or condemnation or shame or fear or doubt or worry, God says, let me lead you into my presence. Will you be honest with Him and cry out to Him and say, God, I need you. I need Thee every hour. Last verse, Psalm 23, verse 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd. Do you know what that means? It means as a sheep, you're willing to follow Him wherever He calls you to go. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His namesake. You see, when you consistently see the Lord, your God, as your good shepherd, leading you into His presence, you realize that there is nothing more that you need. For in His presence, the Bible says, there is a fullness of joy. This is the place that your heart truly longs for, to be completely content in Him. Now I said before that when we are seeking God, what we are saying is, God, I'm going to seek you and I'm going to praise you. And while I'm doing so, you already know what I need. 
So I don't need to spend time asking you what I need. I'm just going to praise you and you're going to take care of my needs. So as we go into our song of reflection right now, many times in the song of reflection I pick a, a modern song or a contemporary song, but there's powerful songs here. And I want to share a powerful song in a time of reflection. Holy, holy, holy. And as we just praise God, God knows what's in your mind. He knows what you need. But let's take time right now saying, God, I need nothing else. I just want to praise you for you are holy. And I believe as I praise you, you're going to meet my needs as well. Let's take time and reflect on this truth.